Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the added team come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. You know, I'm more proud of that than I am for my PhD. <laughs> more creative, you know, it's from the heart. Uh, Callum, how are you doing? Uh, well, I'm in a joyous mood now after that uh, insight into the comparison between that jingle, which is excellent. Thank you, James, for recording that. Uh, I think, anyway. Um, and I can say that because I didn't record it or, or have any part no. to do with it. So. I've not read your opus. PhD, though, so maybe it's really good. I'd also Ooh. don't want to read a PhD. So. Yeah, that's true enough. That's true enough. Well, uh, you're more than welcome to. It's in the University of Edinburgh Library and my mum's bookshelf and no other places because I lost my copy. <laughs> right, Callum, what are we going to talk about today? Well, uh, today we, after the previous episode, the ID's Guide to Penicillins, we're going to do a similar approach to Cephalosporins. Yes, exactly. Except we're not really going to talk about mechanisms of action, blah, blah, blah. It's the same for all beta lactams. The only difference is the spectrum. So we'll, we'll talk about that stuff. But um, um, yes, that's right. So we're going to talk about uh, cephalosporins and what the, uh, the discerning ID physician, or even really just a, a junior doctor who wants to know a little bit more about what they're using, needs to know, I think, about them. During the podcast, at some point, Maybe not in the exact order I'm saying here. We will cover what they are, what what cephalosporins are, how they work, which will be very quick, how they're classified into generations, how to use them, resistance, and touch on side effects. Okay, so uh, a little bit of history. Most people will probably know the uh, history of uh, Alexander Fleming and how penicillins were uh, discovered. Cephalosporins followed on a little while from that, but they had a very similar uh, path. So the person who discovered the first one was an Italian pharmacologist called Giuseppe uh, Brozzu in 1948. He was collecting fungal cultures from a sewage outfall off the Sardinian coast. And then one of the things he grew was a Cephalosporium mold. Now, Cephalosporiums have been renamed Acrimonium, is is the genus. So Cephalosporium doesn't exist anymore, but the species that he discovered was something called Cephalosporium acrimonium. And he discovered that when he cultured these with sal- Salmonella typhi, their growth was inhibited. And this was interesting because Salmonella typhi has a, uh, a beta-lactamase, which means you can't use penicillins against them. But whatever was being produced by the Cephalosporium mold, now called acrimonium mold, was effective. And so... Other people kind of brought on, brought that on and did some more work. And eventually three substances were discovered, which are Cephalosporins P, N, and C. And of these, Cephalosporium C was uh, potent, but none of them were really potent enough to be used as an antimicrobial agent of their own. But with a bit of jiggery-pokery, you ended up with something called 7-aminocephalosporanic acid, or 7-ACA. And 7-ECA is analogous to 6-aminopenicillanic acid, 6-APA, which is the 
starting block from which you make a bunch of penicillin derivatives. And this is exactly what happened with the cephalosporins. People took 7-ACA, made a bunch of derivatives of it, uh, the first of which got FDA approval in 1964, which was cephalothin, um, and then a bunch of cephalosporin compounds started being tested in succession and got approval over time. That's interesting. Yeah. So I guess from Salmonella Typhi's point of view, that was quite an acrimonious discovery. Oh, I thought I was meant to be the dad here. <laughs> well, factually, yes, puns wise, it's a shared parenting. Oh, I know, I know you're the king. No, I, I proclaim no expertise. I'm also quite presence. glad that we don't use kephalothin anymore because I have a lot of problems getting THs. So. Oh, yeah. No, I've never used it either. Um, in fact, we're, what we're going to talk about shortly is um, uh, the, the sum total of all the kephalosporins I've ever used, plus a few others that I know I definitely haven't. Calm, do you want to take us through how they work? How they work. So, James already said it, so I'll say it again. It's basically the same as a beta-lactam uh, antibiotic of any group. So, you've got your penicillin binding proteins, kephalosporins, go in and bind to that. This, the main difference is that they're penicillin A stable. So we think back to beginning of penicillins using against Staph aureus develops a penicillin A's. Cephalosporins aren't mm. broken down by those enzymes. In general, cephalosporins have poor bioavailability. There's w- one exception that we use in the UK, and I think there's in other parts of the world you can get other oral cephalosporins. Yeah, there's a few. They're not in common use in the UK at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I guess cephalexin is used Mm. relatively commonly for UTIs. So that's how they work. How are they classified? People might have heard about the generations, you know. Yeah, I think most people have heard about first, second and third generation cephalosporins. And um, there's more than about 30 or 40 uh, once you look at the whole class. What we're about to talk are, the ones that we're about to talk about are the ones that are in relatively common use in the places that I've worked. They're rel- in relatively common use in the UK, but importantly, almost all of them are on the WHO essential medicines list. And so it's the one that are used in most healthcare systems, especially healthcare systems that are following the WHO essentials medicine list. Um, so developing world systems, uh, for example. So let's talk about the first generation uh, cephalosporins. So there are two that are very commonly used. One is cephalexin. And the other is kefazolin. And the spectrum of action in the generations usually isn't, they're, they're not all that different from each other. The differences are bioavailability, distribution, how often you have to give them, you know, of a day. So, for example, kefazolin is not really orally bioavailable. You have to give it as an injection, which is why it is used in some parts of the world uh, as a cellulitis treatment. And cephalexin is, and so that can be used uh, as a UTI treatment, for example, particularly as it gets concentrated in the urinary tract uh, on its way out. So in terms of spectrum, the we're going to be dividing them into generations. Generally, as you go up, you get increasing gram-negative cover, and as you uh, go up, that, that tends to be at the expense of gram-positive cover until at the very end. Uh, with fifth generations, but we'll talk about that shortly. So Kefazol and Keflex, they'll cover MSSA, they'll cover Streptococcus. And in terms of the gram negatives, 
they'll cover three big hitters, which is Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella. And so my mnemonic for this is PEC, P-E-K, um, Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella. And obviously these are three ones that cause the lion's share of all UTIs. And, you know, even E. coli and Klebsiella on their own, that's 90% of all UTIs, um, certainly for me and Callum work. And if you add Proteus, you're probably up to about 92, 93%. So this makes Keflexin an excellent choice for uh, urinary tract cover. And that's that's mostly what I've used it for. Calm, have you used it for other stuff? No. And Kefazolin, we've spoke to, spoken about before in the Staphylococci episode, uh, as that's the treatment of choice for MSSA or Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia in some parts of the world. Yeah, I, I used it in uh, New Zealand quite a lot. Um, yeah. That was our default uh, for cellulitis. Using flu, flu clots was the oral switch option, but you didn't give it IV. Fine. And then going up into the second generation, you get uh, kefiroxime as your, your type antibiotic here. Uh, now you've got slightly less gram-positive cover, and I'll talk about that at the end, uh, how I know that. But you also get increased gram-negative cover against, uh, in particular, three other organisms, Haemophilus, influenza, Entrobacter, and Neisseria but also Serratia marcescens. So my mnemonic for this is HENS, Haemophilus, Entrobacter, Neisseria, Serratia. So HENS and PEC are the things that kefiroxime would cover. Kefiroxime, you can give it orally. Its bioavailability isn't great, but you can get kefiroxime tablets. Usually it's given IV. Historically, if you wanted to give somebody broad spectrum cover for general surgery, field, for example, you might have seen people being given kef and med. Well, the original kef was kefiroxime, not keftriaxone, because that was the one that was available and was cheap. And so people would give kefiroxime and metronidazole, and that would give them a bit of gram-positive and gram-negative with the kefiroxime, and some anaerobic cover uh, with the metronidazole. In fact, when I first started, there were surgical firms which used kefiroxime as their default, and other ones which used uh, keftriaxone, and I had to have a little list reminding me of uh, which to prescribe. Then once we get into the third generation, there are a few here, but really there's one that, that kind of dominates in terms of use, and that's keftraxone. So there are other ones. There's kefotaxime, there's kefixime, and importantly, there's keftazidine, uh, but we'll talk about that shortly. And these are typified by better gram-negative cover than the second-generation kefalosporins. Keftraxone in particular is really useful because it can be given once a day, and people will have seen it used in, in things like meningitis. Um, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, it crosses inflamed meninges quite well, and so it gets good brain penetration, and this is a, a feature of quite a few of the third-generation kefalosporins that we're mentioning here. Um, in terms of spectrum, they are all kind of much of a muchness, except that halfway through the third generation, you acquire anti-pseudomonal cover. So keftazidine has pseudomonas. Yes. The thing I'd add to that is kefotaxime you quite often see used in neonates, little kids. And the main reason for not using keftraxone in that situation is it can displace bilirubin. And if you're a little baby and you're worried about connectoris and high bilirubin levels, then you want to try and avoid keftraxone. Uh, so that's the main place that we use it is in uh, is in kids yes exactly so yeah the the way that i remember that keftazidine has antipsychotic cover it's got a taz in it so it's a bit like tazacin so 
Keftazidim is a bit like Taz in that it covers uh, Pseudomonas. And in fact, you can broaden out as cover two. This is not in the WHO essential medicines list, but you can combine it with a beta-lactamine zebra called Avabactam, and you can get Keftaz Avabactam, which is one of the treatments of last resort used for extremely uh, drug-resistant XDR gram-negative infections. Uh, you can try and use that. You, we have used that locally, haven't we, Callum? Yeah, you have to do certain orders. It's not something that's mainstream available. No, yet. we didn't have it. We had to get it from the London or someplace like that, didn't we? Yeah, it's. it's I think because Edinburgh is a lower instance place for carbapenemase producing intrabatory C and other multi-drug resistant or extremely drug resistant gram negatives, we probably don't have as much experience as a centre in dealing with, with these organisms, where if you mm. go even somewhere like London or Manchester and there's a much more diverse uh, population that you're serving, you get a lot more people traveling from areas of high incidence. And so you see a lot more. So, yeah. yeah. And the same, and, you know, if you look at like ICU patients in Southern Europe, like uh, Italy and Greece are the ones that are always uh, talked about in the European Union reports. You know, if you go to ICU there, you're, you're high risk of picking up organism so they'll be using a lot of these these drugs uh, mm. but that's that's worthy of a whole episode in itself and well i'm sure it's coming i'm sure it's coming and then the fourth generation kephalosporin there's there's a few but the uh, the one that is used most commonly is kefepine i haven't used this in a very long time i've used it a couple of times in australia i think again in intensive care patients i can't remember what, why for the life of me but for some reason it was considered the most appropriate uh, antibiotic and then the last one is so once you get kind of above fourth generation all the people talk about fifth generation or five plus antibiotics that's because some people say oh this is a sixth generation kephalosporins and the the idea of having a high generation becomes a marketing ploy and we're, we're not even going to talk about the um uh, the newest hitter on the block, Kefidericol, the Trojan horse antibiotic, oh, as Shinogi yeah. would love you to refer to it as. That That's just <laughs> way above our pay grade. And so I don't think that it's, um, it's really interesting. Uh, we're going to include it. It's very interesting, but I think it should be in a podcast labeled weird antibiotics that you should never prescribe unless an ID consultant tells you to. I think because we've picked people's curiosity, it'd be worth just giving a very brief sentence on it. And essentially their selling point on it is that it, enters the bacterial cell um, as a siderophore. So through the iron transportation mechanics, the bacteria have, which uh, isn't present in human cells. And so you can achieve quite high concentrations in the bacteria. So that's the idea. Yeah. And it's an active transport mechanism. So the bacteria is dragging it in, in real time and apparently can't turn it off. So that's, that's good. That's pretty cool. But then the, the fifth generation antibiotic that we are going to cover in, in proper detail is kiftaraline. So as you go up the generations, you're getting more and more gram-negative cover, and that, that's almost sort of at the expense of gram-positive cover. You're getting less and less trustworthy cover of, of Staph aureus and, and Streptococcus. But that changes with the fifth generation. So with the fifth generation, you get kiftaraline. Kiftaraline not only covers MSSA, it covers MRSA as well. Um, and it's also got broad and cover for gram negative. So it covers uh, listeria uh, as well. And actually, uh, I've got a note here saying it covers Enterococcus faecalis too. So it's got some Enterococci cover. Now, normally Kephalosporins don't uh, cover Enterococci at all. That's the received wisdom. But Kefterline clearly has not read the memo uh, and is covering a load of stuff that by rights it shouldn't be doing. 
the one exception is that it doesn't cover Pseudomonas. So, you know, I, I said that halfway through the third generation, you've acquired anti-Pseudomonal cover with Keftazidine. Kefapim also covers it. Keftaraline does not cover Pseudomonas. So you've lost that again. And that's all we're going to say about the generations. So let, let me just point out that for each generation, you really only need to know one or two to be fully familiar with standard UK use and, and use in other parts of the world as well. And they, just to, just to remind the loyal listener, would be for the first generations, Kefazole and Kefalexin, but really mostly Kefalexin. For the second generation, Kefuroxine. For the third generation, keftriaxone, if you're treating adults, kefataxime, if you're treating babies. And the fourth generation, kefepine. And if you're wanting to prescribe anything above a fourth generation, you should be involving an infection specialist and you shouldn't be doing it on your own anyway. Side question. Why a lot of antibiotics have developed over time of new grouping? Is the whole idea of these generations a marketing ploy or is there some stepwise change between them? No, I think that early on there there was clearly a difference such that it was reasonable. And and I've not talk, gone into the uh, details of it, but there are actually pharmacological and biochemical differences between the generations. This is how you got the generations, is that you added on this instead of that, and then you get a broader spectrum uh, antibiotic. And then, the, you know, the first generations, if you put them into an electron microscope or uh, something like that, you would, they would look characteristically different from the, the second generation to the third generations, etc. As you get into the weird and wonderfuls like keftaraline and um, kefidericol, it does get to be a bit marketing ploy although you could argue that kefidericol is so working so differently to the others in, ter- in terms of how it gets into the cell, that is worth it being in a separate you know, it defies generations. You know, it's a it's an nth generation kefalosporin. See, I would say kefidericol. Oh God, we're now back to our classic <laughs> Callum mispronounce stuff, and James tries not know. to lose his shit on the podcast. Well, if you know how it's meant to be pronounced, you could email us maybe oh, your voice okay. clip. Um, God, nobody show this to Shinogi. They'll they'll probably say that we're both wrong. Shinogi. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry, I, I meant to pronounce it Seanagy or something like that. Is that how you would do it? But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I think the generations, it was wise to have them in generations earlier on, but now it gets a bit kind of fuzzy the higher the higher up you go, let's say, yeah. Just memorise all of them individually. That's the easiest thing to do. Oh, no, no, I don't like that at all. So <laughs> how to how use them? So... I don't have a huge amount to say here, really, except that when it comes to, you know, the the, the pharmacokinetics, as a, as a default, you would use them all IV, except for keflexin, which has good oral bioavailability or decent oral bio, bio, bioavailability, I should say. In terms of distribution, it's important to know which ones cross the blood-brain barrier. So keftraxone is the obvious example, but actually it's not so good at crossing an uninflamed meninges, there are other ones that are better, like kefapine, yeah, for example. Yeah. But it'll cross a meningitic meninges mm. just fine and, and will then kind of penetrate in there. A good clinical example of that is, so say you've got a patient with meningitis, it gets in fine. But if you've got someone, say, a brain abscess and they don't have meningitis, then you're not going to get much keftraxone in. So although you're so used to using it for a central nervous system infection, mm. suddenly you're, you need to think about that 
the pharmacokinetics of it in that situation to say actually this isn't the best choice right now yeah yeah uh, i suppose the other thing is that um people talk about cns dosing or central nervous system dosing of keftraxone which is essentially just double what you would normally use so the standard dose is two grams once a day for cns dosing it would be two grams twice a day um so usually that's given you know two grams bd it can also be given four grams once a day for uh if you're in an opat setting we've we've got a few patients that we've had to do that for for whatever reason mm-hmm. uh we needed to that that's one another thing to mention about keftraxone because it's once a day, it's really useful for OPAD. Yeah. And unless you've got a, you know, prolonged infusion, uh, elastomeric infusion device in your OPAD setting, having stuff that you can give once a day is really, really useful. Um, and so, you know, keftraxone forms a part of that kind of repertoire of once a day antibiotics. A huge part is not probably the most, most used antibiotic that we have. Yeah. Well, actually, I've got an example. Um, what I'm going to talk about, you know, what, what, one aspect about how to use them which is don't trust the higher generation ones for really tough to treat gram positive infection. Uh, I'll give you my example, Cal, and then we'll, then we can talk about it. You and I, so I had a, a patient, they had staph aureus bacteremia. So MSSA bacteremia it was fully sensitive to, to everything. And they had a discitis but it was multi-level discitis. It was a lot, a lot of different areas. Uh, but we, I, I kind of met them in the hospital and we put them on flucloxacillin. It was fully sensitive to that. We got everything under control. The patient was better. They wanted to go home. And so I kind of negotiated OPAT uh, with them, which was kind of difficult because they, they weren't local really to... Um, to the hospital, so they needed OPAT, not in the normal OPAT place. But we got it all figured out and we got a plan. And then they went home. And because beta-lactams are best of lactams, I've said that in the Idiot's Guide to Penicillins, I put them on or recommended that they be started on keftraxone. It's simple, it's easy, it's you know uh, one hour infusion once a day, and then the patient can just get on with their life. That was my thinking. And then I get to the end of the treatment session so i put them down for about six weeks and the opat service stops because it's the end of of the plan and then the plan is that i'm going to get another mri which you don't necessarily always do but i was kind of feeling a bit antsy about this patient because they had the multi-level discitis so we got it and uh, they were like there's still still looks like this discitis here no you can't always trust that because the imaging lags behind the the resolution but in the three days that this person was off antibiotics we got a repeat crp and it gone from three to 300 which is very elevated yeah and so i i call i I got her back in and uh, i said uh, i think we need to keep you on the antibiotics and she was starting to get a bit of back pain so like all the kind of red flags were going off in my head and I was like, let's get you on something else. But I, I chose something else this time in consultation with my seniors, I have to say, uh, I should point out. Um, uh, and we, just so that loyal listener isn't, isn't wondering what we started, we started Tycoplanin, which is a glycopeptide antibiotic that you can give three times a week uh, in the OPAT setting. 
we've got a, a protocol set up so that you can do that. Now, normally, we've, I think we've talked about this when we were talking about Staph aureus and, and again, when we were talking about penicillins, you would consider penicillins to be, or particularly fluclox, to be superior to vancomycin, which is your in-hospital glycopeptide, for treating Staph aureus. But here I made a switch from a cephalosporin to a glycopeptide, in part because my supervising consultant, and now me, didn't really trust the keftraxone to do the same thing. And I asked the, the boss, who's one of our professors, why not? And he said, well, look, the, the evidence is that there's higher MIC breakpoints to the higher generation keftraxone, like a third generation, like keftraxone, compared to the first generations or flu blocks. And this was a bit surprising to me because I had lots of experience of using Keftrax in the NOPAT setting. And of course, it's our kind of almost like our default for follow-on treatment for cellulitis and, and MSSA uh, infections uh, locally. And, you know, we've never had much of a problem with it. So I went and looked it up and uh, he was right. There's tons of evidence and the um, there's even real world hard outcome evidence of treatment failures that as soon as you go above the first generation. So kefazolin is equivalent efficacy to flucloxacillin for treatment of gram-positive infection. So you know your staph aureuses, your MSSAs, and your streptococci. As soon as you go above that generation, your treatment efficacy starts to kind of drop and you get higher failure rates. And, you know, real-world hard outcome evidence is that higher generation kefalosporins have worse outcomes when compared to either flucloxacillin or kefazolin for the treatment of MSSA infections. Hmm. So his thinking was that he would trust a glycopeptide more than a kefalosporin in this setting, given that there was such a burden of disease. And I think that's the big difference is that there was tons of bug at multiple different levels within the spine, that he would trust tycoplanin more than keftraxone for resolution. And in fact, that's what she stayed on for the rest of her IV cycle. And then I actually did some follow-on. This poor lady actually got 18 weeks of antibiotics, if you can believe that, in defiance of all, all guidelines. So I guess you're talking a lot about trust and I get, you know, just to maybe rationalize out that thought process a bit. Although there is evidence, it's not high quality, it's my understanding. No, it's, no. it's case series, it's cohort studies, and there's conflicting reviews. So, you know, there was one systematic review in 2020, which looked at a couple of different papers, and they found that there wasn't any evidence to say that, you know, keftraxone was any worse than lower generation keftosporins. But then we have situations where you have clinical failure, um, and although it's only anecdotal, it does affect your thinking. So when you don't have good quality evidence, you, you are sort of influenced by your past experience and I guess to summarize that I think my experience would be if you've got someone with a staphylococcus aureus infection that is low burden of disease say they've got staph aureus bacteremia it's uncomplicated they don't have deep sites of infection they've had you know a, a course of flucoxacillin and they're improved keftraxin probably is okay but as in this case if you've got someone with a high burden of disease multi-site infection you know, things haven't resolved is is more likely to fail. Although the flip side of that is that we don't know 
uh, retrospectoscope. You know, maybe that patient had been tycoplanin for those six weeks. When you stopped, it could have gone up and it was just the duration that made the difference. Maybe. Maybe, I don't know. The, the stuff that I'm looking at... Murky. But, I mean, that that's what infection medicine is. Yeah. It's, it's murky. And, uh, you know, the thing that I'm looking at is... There's a couple of papers, one's from 2011, one's from 2014. The, the one from 2014 is a systematic review and a meta-analysis from people from respectable institutions uh, in the US and in, and in Greece. But it's all still just looking at kind of cohort studies. That's all that they can get their hands on. Nobody's yeah. done an RCT. And so you put garbage in, you'll get garbage out. Yeah. What I have to do, the, the thing that I've made my peace with over the years, Callum, is that I'll I just have to go with the evidence base that I've got and the evidence base that I've got. If you took it into another realm of, of, of medicine, like cardiology or respiratory medicine, you know, the big hitters, they would laugh you out of the room and say, this is absolute nonsense, but that's what we've got in infectious disease and microbiology. And we've just got to, to use it as best we can. Yep. I mean, that's quite a murky case. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess expresses some of the challenges uh, maybe we yeah. should go back to Kev Traxon proper, but that's certainly an insight into some thought processes. Yeah, well, it is the insight of two specialists, isn't it? Uh, that's the name, the name of the podcast. So in terms of resistance, I'm not going to really say a lot about this, except how it's different from penicillin resistance. So it's still subject to PBP alteration and, uh, you know, the, the archetype example of that would be enterococci. So cephalosporins have no activity against enterococci because they don't carry the PBPs that cephalosporins work against. And it's always subject to reduced penetrance. But in terms of beta-lactamases, they are intrinsically resistant to penicillinases. But there are cephalosporinases, aren't there, Callum? Yes. There's a whole complicated world of extended spectrum beta-lactamases and uh, other enzymes that affect beta-lactam antibiotics. So we won't go into depth, but yeah, there, there are some extended spectrum beta-lactamases, so the sort of classic example would be CTXM, but uh, with cephalosporins being very complicated, you know, there's various enzymes. Some will break down some of the cephalosporins, and there's quite complicated patterns of resistance, which I don't think it's important to know, other that you need to try and get the organism and test sensitivity, because although it might be sensitive to one of the cephalosporins, it may well be resistant to another one. Yeah, in fact, uh, our gram-negative testing panel just has an example from each generation, and then sometimes a couple uh, from each, so like keftraxone and keftazidine are in our gram-negative testing panel and uh, a couple of ones that we haven't mentioned. So cephalosporins are in a in a group, a group of, of drugs called KEFMs, and KEFMs are composed of two subgroups, which are cephalosporins that we've been talking about, and kefamycins. Kefamycins are a related group of antibiotic compounds that are produced by, by molds, which are don't really have a clinical use, uh, but there is one of them which is used to identify MRSA from MSSA, which is kefoxetin. Yeah, so this is a kefamycin. It's not a kefalosporin, but a kefamycin and a kefalosporins are both kefems, and kefems is the big group uh, that these fall under. Yeah, and the other, kef- the other thing we use in the lab is kefpodoxime. Yeah, which is a kefalosporin. Yeah, use that as a screening test for yeah. carbapenemase-producing enterobacteria. 
uh, let's uh, finish off with uh, with side effects. When it comes to side effects, kephalosporins in general are, are actually very mild and they tend not to cause a lot uh, in the way of side effects. The, the big things to look out for are nausea, allergy or skin reactions in general, abdominal pain and diarrhea. They can occasionally cause eosinophilia. And then the big thing to look out for is uh, C. difficile uh, overgrowth and uh, resultant C. diff diarrhea, uh, which can end up with the patient getting something called pseudomembranous enterocolitis, uh, which is a surgical emergency. Uh, you can't resolve that just with antibiotics. That's the big thing that kephalosporins have been known for in recent years. People have probably heard of the 4C antibiotics, which are the ones to avoid giving uh, so that you can prevent your patient getting C. diff diarrhea. Uh, those are clindamycin, ciprofloxacin, comoxiclav, and keftriaxone. But really that would be a, a surrogate for all higher generation kephalosporins. They all carry this risk uh, of C. diff associated diarrhea. Yeah, the lower generation, the first generation kephalosporins, so say something like kephalexin probably has a, a higher C. diff risk than an equivalent drug used for UTI like trimethoprim or nitrofurantoin. But kefasolin, from studies that I've read when I was interested in, you know, why we're not using it in the UK for um, staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, um, it doesn't yeah. seem to have much of an increased C. diff risk. Again, there's caveats on the evidence base. No, that, that's my understanding too. So the, for it, it's C. diff risk is equivalent roughly to flu clocks. And I think that's probably just because it's not killing all of the competitors mm -hmm. uh, that say keftraxone or even kefiroxine uh, would do. So again, once you jump beyond the first generation, you get this uptick in, in likelihood of, of, of side effects. I think the things that, as a general rule in my head, if you're thinking about C. diff risk, things that kill a wide range, particularly gram negatives, and also anaerobes. So a lot of your gut microbiota are anaerobic organisms. So if you're killing them, then you're wiping out a lot of the organisms that keep your C. diff in check. Yeah. And one thing we haven't talked about is anaerobe cover, but things like keftraxin have reason, you know, some reasonable anaerobe cover. And you go earlier generations, you you tend to have a bit less. Yeah. Uh, not not that you would cover. trust them to cover anaerobes. It's just that they happen to kill some, some anaerobes because yeah. a lot of anaerobes are sensitive to penicillin. And as a general rule, anything that uh, penicillin can kill, um, keftraxone can kill too. All right. Anything else to say, Cal? I guess another side effect we mentioned briefly earlier on, but keftraxone it can cause bilirubin displacement and it can also cause cholestasis. So you tend to see that the higher doses, particularly, uh, you know, if you're in the outpatient setting and you're giving that extra dose of the four mm. grams once a day is where I'd, I've seen it quite a lot where patients start to develop deranged liver function tests and you end up having to, to change. Yeah, but, but an easy fix, all you have to do is change it. Um, yeah. it's, not so it's just something to monitor. Permanent, with, with but yeah. yeah. Particularly. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much all we would want to say on kephalosporins. What is the word? Why is it called kephalosporins? Oh, it's because the acrimonium fungus spores from the head. There we go. The head of a human? No. The head of a what? The head of the fungus. The head of the fungus. The, the, or, the original compound came from the head of the fungus. Yeah. You know the reason I know that, Callum? Why? It's because you told it to me a month ago when I suggested this podcast. Did I? Yes. <laughs> I forgot. 
It's the only reason I know. I would have probably guessed the head of something, Kefalo and all that, but, you know. I think, yeah, the more you learn, the more you forget. Oh, the more you learn. <laughs> God, and that's never been true. Uh, all right. Any questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you email us to uh, email them in to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then.